Hey, welcome to night school. It's Christmas Day night. Not to be confused with daylight, it's day night. Feeling under the weather, I feel like I might be coming down with something. Just where you end up feeling exhausted for no particular reason. You just have that feeling in your head. That I'm potentially getting sick feeling in your head. And we, of course, live in a time where that means something completely different to everybody now. I had some people come by today, so I'm just like, well, I hope I didn't give them something. Since that's a crime now. It is now a crime. So you just have to hope that nobody else got whatever I've got. If I've got something. If I've got anything at all. A good day, though. Christmas, it was a, it was a nice Christmas in its own way. Batman got treats. He got a, a couple new bag, few new bags of treats from people. He got a new set of stairs. That's all I want. You know, there's very little that I want myself. A friend of mine gave me a uh, a card. It's a it's got the mugshot of the Unabomber, the famous police sketch of the Unabomber. And it says, let me look at I need to get what it says. Just one second here. It says uh says, like, your other package is arriving separately or something like that. Your other package is arriving separately. Funny. Clever card. You know, don't threaten me with a good Unabomber Christmas card. Your other package will arrive separately. Good, good humor there. I just opened it and I immediately saw that famous police sketch. I mean, is there anything more iconic than that? You know, I was talking about American mythology and how Columbine has become part of this American mythology that we have. Unabomber, too. And that police sketch, that famous Unabomber police sketch, that's really become a part of American mythology as well. Turns out a lot of our mythology is dark. A lot of it's somewhat morbid. Wouldn't have it any other way. A lot of mythology in general is dark. A lot of just classic mythology is dark, too. But uh, a friend gave me that, the Unabomber card, and then also a, I'd never had this one. She gave me a Bang Energy Drink Key Lime Pie flavor. Never had Key Lime Pie, very interesting can. A bright green with blue highlights. I like the way it looked. It wasn't bad. I don't think I would ever get it on my own. I don't think I would ever get Key Lime Pie. I'm a Key Lime guy. Oh, me, I'm a key lime guy. I'm a key lime guy with my key lime pie. Now, I don't think I would ever get a key lime pie flavored energy drink, bang energy on my own, but I'm really happy to have tried it because there's a part of me that does want to try every single flavor. And uh, my friend up in Canada, I let him know because he's gotten in. He found the, he found like the bang depot in Montreal, in the Montreal area. Because he was saying it's hard to find up there, which makes sense because Bang is very American. I mean, one of my goals here is to make Bang Energy Drink a permanent part of American mythology. Along with Columbine and the Unabomber police sketch, I want Ameri- uh, to make Bang Energy Drink part of the enduring American mythology. If I've done one thing to contribute to American mythology, I want it to be... Keeping the Bang logo part of that. 
but uh, he's up there in Canada, and it makes sense that Canada doesn't have quite as many bangs as elsewhere. So he's had a little bit of difficulty finding it, but he sent me a photo where there was just, it was like the bottom of a cooler. It was the bottom of like a drink cooler in a convenience store, and it was like every flavor, and it went back, row after row of Bang Energy drink. I saw Miami Cola. They had Miami Cola. But he told me this. I didn't know this, but he was telling me he bought, he said, he said he also bought Reese's Peanut Butter. And I said, what do you mean, like Reese's peanut butter cups? And he said, no, I bought a jar of peanut butter that's Reese brand. And I've never seen that. He sent me a picture, and it's, it's a jar of peanut butter with the Reese logo on it, but it's just peanut butter. It's not Reese's peanut butter candy. It's actual peanut butter. I don't know if I'm just ignorant. I mean, I know I'm ignorant. I don't know if I'm just ignorant, though, and I've never heard of this, or if it's a Canadian thing, but I, I didn't know that Reese simply made peanut butter. It really makes me want to try it. it. makes me wonder if it's more like the peanut butter that you find inside of like a Reese's peanut butter cup, or if it is just... I, I imagine it's sugary. You know, I can't imagine that Reese makes... that Reese's makes just standard healthy peanut butter... I mean, I don't know if any peanut butter is healthy, but I don't think it's like buying the nice organic peanut butter. I'm, I have to imagine it's kind of like candy peanut butter, but I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. But I was kind of blown away by that because I've never seen it. And I feel like I would have. You know, I've looked at plenty of peanut butter aisles in my life. I've looked at plenty of peanut butter aisles, and I've never once seen the Reese logo staring back at me. Never once. And I feel like I would notice that. But yeah, key lime pie, not bad. You know, it tasted like key lime pie. Key lime pie bang for a key lime guy. Tasted like artificial key lime pie. But I I was listening to an interview with... um, it was an interview between Bill Burr. It was two comedians, Bill Burr and Jim Gaffigan. And I like both those guys. You know, I'm not a big stand-up comedy guy. It's been years since I've seen any Jim Gaffigan specials. I feel like he's one of the funnier guys, though. He has very clean humor. He has the kind of humor that most people can... I feel like just about anybody could find what he does funny. But what I like about Jim Gaffigan, what I always liked about his specials, is it's very phantom-oriented. You know, I talk about the phantoms a lot on here. I mean, I'm ru- I'm, I am ruled by phantoms. Where, like, I say something and I immediately hear this voice. And it's usually slightly different than my own voice. Sometimes it's one of the voices I do on here, but it's definitely a distinct and different voice. Like, I'll say something and I immediately hear this other voice in my head say it back to me in kind of a questioning way. Or they challenge what I say in some way. And I know I'm not alone in that. You know, I know a lot of people like have arguments in their head with phantoms because I hear them talk about it. I realize that that's actually a source of a lot of people's anxiety is they are living this life where they are constantly hearing a phantom bantering back at them and challenging what they say. And some people can't really make the distinction. You know, it's almost like somebody who has a dream, like the classic joke where it's like your girlfriend has a dream and you are cheating on her in it. And she wakes up and hits you. It's like that kind of joke where it's like, 
because it felt real to her. You know, it's that kind of thing sometimes where I think like some people are arguing with phantoms in their head and then they go about their lives and they kind of forget that that was just a phantom. And even those, even though those phantoms often represent something that could potentially happen or the way somebody could actually respond to you or what you're thinking. Sometimes I think people go about their lives and they forget that they were simply having an argument with a phantom, which is why I think it's such a good source of comedy. Like a good way to deal with that phenomenon, the phantom phenomenon, is to kind of turn it into a joke. And a lot of my humor comes from that. You know, a lot of my own just even not on this show, even just in my life. I've just been doing that forever. Like I'll play those voices back to me and I'm like, that's funny. But one thing I like about Jim Gaffigan is his humor is largely based on that. You know, he does that sort of offended woman voice. And so I like that about him. But watching this interview with him, I don't know. A lot of disclaimers. I noticed that because I don't know what he's like outside of his stand up comedy. But I noticed a lot of disclaimers where it was like he was saying a lot of things. Where he'd be like, well, we're just a couple of straight white males, so I don't know. You know, I was like, man, there's a funny way that you could present that. But it's what other people have referred to as like a don't hurt me statement, which is a disclaimer. A disclaimer is the same as a don't hurt me statement where it's kind of like, well, what do I know? I'm just a, we're just a couple of straight white males sitting here. Oh, look at us. We're so white. There was a lot of that type of stuff. And they reached a point where um, Bill Burr, who what I like about him is like you could see Bill Burr being like the most aggressive bigot in the world because he looks that way and he sounds that way. But in reality, he's not at all. And he does a good job at staying neutral. I don't pay that close of attention to him, but, you know, once in a while I'll listen to his show and I've seen his stand up. And what I like about Bill Burr is he's just in a warrior mindset all the time. You know, he's got this very aggressive Boston style and he's very sharp and he's very good at just like picking up on he's, he's very good at jabbing at people in the moment. Like I'd seen this stand up comedy thing he did years ago where the crowd was booing him in Philadelphia. It's a, it was a famous, it's kind of an infamous event where Bill Burr was being booed by this crowd in Philadelphia, and he just decided to go off on them, just ranting and raving about these people, just everything he hated about Philadelphia and the people who lived there. And one of the things he said in it that I liked, or he's like, you're the type of people who drive Ford F-250 trucks and you park them at your office. Like, you drive your Ford 250 truck to the frickin' office. You know, he was saying stuff like that that I thought was funny. Very good observation there. The sort of guy who drives a Ford 250. I mean, do I need to explain it? But, uh, you know, works in this office. Like, there's people who live here where, like, they live in a McMansion, but they drive big trucks. And, like, my joke about those people years ago was, like, oh, those are the people who get the, the front row seat tickets to the blue collar comedy tour. It's like this form of like wealthy pseudo redneck. And as Bill Burr said, like, yeah, they drive their trucks to their office. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But what I like about Bill Burr is too, like I've seen interviews with him where like he'll throw jabs at the interviewer or the, or the guest on his show. And sometimes they don't know how to handle it because people are so exquisitely sensitive and they reached a point, though, where Bill Burr was talking, like he was talking shit about the January 6th people. He was just kind of making some jokes about that. 
and Jim Gaffigan was too. But then Bill Burr like made some comment about how like he can't stand extremists on the left either. He was saying like, well, he made the point where he's like, he was like, he was like, you know, he's like, I don't think that the people who did the whole January 6th thing, he's like, I don't think that reflects on the whole right wing. And he's like, in the same way that the extremists on the left don't reflect on the entire left wing, which is important to remember. It feels like an obvious point, but sometimes that needs to be stated. But Jim Gaffigan got very uncomfortable and he was like, well, I don't I don't think that people can compare Trump to Biden. Trump's felt to, to Jabama bin Biden like, you know, like the Trump's felt was so much worse than Jabama bin Biden. And Bill Burr's like, I'm not even talking about them. He's like, I didn't even mention Jabama bin Biden. He's like, I'm talking about the extremists on each side. I'm not even talking about the politicians themselves. He's like, I'm talking about the extremists and you're getting uncomfortable. That's what I like about him is he was just like, he, he called him out right there. And they're friends, you know, which I like about it. But it's like Gaffigan, you could tell. It's like he was uncomfortable with just Bill Burr making that statement. And Bill Burr called him out. I haven't even finished it. I started doing this. I started talking. Uh, but it was just kind of funny. I mean, it didn't make me think less of Jim Gaffigan. I honestly don't even know anything about him. But uh, it was just funny to me, like, where he got uncomfortable because he was like, well, no, but you, you can't compare Trump's felt to Obama bin Biden. Like, you can't compare them. Like, Trump's felt so much worse. And Bill Burr's just like, come on, man. But, you know, Bill Burr, too, like, there's a couple interviews he's done over the last couple years where there's two podcasts he did where the hosts of the podcast had to get therapy afterward. They admitted that. And one of them's a guy I like, and the other one's a guy I don't like. One of them was Theo Vaughn, who's another one. He's an, another one of these mini comedians who I've kind of paid peripheral attention to because he does a popular podcast. And I'll, once in a while, I'll listen to it. And what I like about Theo Vaughn is everything he talks about is like kids he knew in his hometown growing up, which obviously I do all the time. I like that. I always like when people just when they remember because there's so many people who grow up and they don't even remember their classmates. They don't even remember the kids in the neighborhood. Like, it wasn't important to them. It didn't lodge in their brain. Whereas me, like, and this is true for all my friends, all my closest friends, it, whether I grew up with them or not, but, like, the kids we grew up with are permanently lodged in our brains. Like, those early experiences with other people, with our peers, just lodged in our brains. So one of the reasons I like Theo Vaughn is that he grew up in the South, and he just, I think, some small town in Louisiana. And almost, when he's left to his own devices to just talk... It's all he talks about. It's all about random kids in his neighborhood, random kids who just did weird things. And it's always something particularly weird because he's in some backwoods. He grew up in some backwoods Louisiana town. But I always appreciate that in someone. And I like him. You know, I don't, I don't know what his stand-up comedy is like. I don't actually follow stand-up comedy. It's just that stand-up comedians have obviously been a very large force when it comes to podcasts. So it's hard not to listen and pay attention a little bit. But Bill Burr was on his show, and I saw it when it debuted. And Theo Vaughn, you can tell he's a pretty sensitive guy. Like, he's funny and everything, but it's like you can tell he's a pretty sensitive guy. And Bill Burr was, just did what he does, where, like, someone will ask him a question. And he'll be like, well, yeah, of course I do that. Yeah, of course. Why would you even ask that? You know, it's that kind of thing. It's just this kind of aggressive Boston bluntness. And it's part of his humor, but it's also you can tell it's also his personality. 
his kind of macho. But you could tell that like Theo Vaughn was just paralyzed by it, and it, that made it that much better. Like I enjoyed watching that because even though I like Theo Vaughn, I was like, this is amazing to watch. It's amazing to watch somebody just be paralyzed by this blunt, aggressive human being. <laughs> you know, it was just it was amazing to watch because it just completely shut this guy down. And it's not like he was bullying him. It's not like he was being mean. You could just tell it completely caught Theo Vaughn off guard. And then there was another one. It's just, I don't even want to say the name of it. It's this, it's not a guy who was a comedian. It's a guy who got, I guess he got well known on the internet. He does a podcast with his wife. And they're just, uh, they're not funny. I've never watched their show for its own sake, but I've seen it a few times because they'll occasionally have a guest that I'm interested in. And it's a very well known podcast. I think they got famous making internet, like YouTube videos. And from what I gather, they were like ripping off some people who were big at the time. So they basically, you know, they just got famous for ripping other people off. And now they have a big name. It's this husband and wife. And the husband, he's just embarrassing. It's, it's truly embarrassing to watch him. But Bill Burr was extremely, he was the same way, just aggressive and blunt to a very insecure person. And once again, the guy just got paralyzed by it. And then those two guys did a show together. Like Theo Vaughn and this guy that I don't like did a show together sometime later. And it was really just them talking about, they were like, you know, they both went to therapy after Bill Burr was on their show because they were so damaged by it. And if you watch those interviews, it's like you might not even pick up on it. But they were both so paralyzed by Bill Burr's personality like it just it, like it shines such a harsh light on both of them that they both admitted that they went to therapy just because of those interviews. And that that's even funnier, like watching these two guys like sheepishly admit that they were psychologically damaged by Bill Burr. I'm just like, that's an accomplishment. That is an accomplishment to go on multiple podcasts and just dismantle these people unintentionally. Just to do it completely unintentionally. And so I appreciate him for that alone. Like anybody who can do that, anybody who can just, by being himself and making his typical subtle jabs that he makes toward everybody, these two, you know, insecure guys, insecure in their own ways, just felt completely destroyed by him. Like something happened to their souls. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of how it felt. And watching them commiserate about it, they were like, yeah, you know, he was on my show. And afterward, I just... I. I couldn't even think I couldn't even just I couldn't even live with myself you know it's just funny to see that happen and it was funny to kind of see this with Jim Gaffigan this episode just came out a couple days ago and just to see like when Jim Gaffigan started kind of waffling when politics came up because I mean Bill Burr is not a right-wing guy at all Uh, but he seems like one. I mean, that's the funny thing about a guy like that. Like I said, if you were to look at him, you'd be like, oh, this guy's a Boston bigot, which is a type of human. There is a very real type of human that is a Boston bigot. And he seems like he should be that, and he has the personality of a Boston bigot, but he's not at all. But you can kind of see where, like, Jim Gavigan started waffling about something. Like, he, they, were, they were going back and forth, they were trading barbs, just fun barbs. And then all of a sudden, Jim Gaffigan started waffling about something and Bill Burr was, he caught him. (laughs) I just appreciate seeing that. But 
you know, I, I can, you know, I can always watch that kind of thing. Like, I don't like to see anybody get truly embarrassed. I don't, here's the thing. I don't like to see somebody get humiliated. I don't take pleasure in seeing somebody get humiliated, but there's something about seeing somebody caught off guard in that way that I like where like somebody, you know, like, like when you find when there's somebody like Bill Burr, who's like an expert at finding like the chink in someone's armor. Like he knows exactly where the plates in someone's armor meets. And if they reveal that, he's going to get them there. Like I saw him, I guess I, I, I must watch a lot more Bill Burr than I realize. Like I don't, I don't actively like follow him. Like I don't subscribe to his YouTube channel. I don't like search, Google search for him, but I guess it just the, the, the supernatural algorithm just sends him my way sometimes. But he was on uh, Howie Mandel's show, and I actually like Howie Mandel. I didn't know that I did. You know, I never, I never really thought about him one way or another. Here I am. I'm like, you know, I love Howie Mandel. No, Howie Mandel's cool, though, because he's just an extremely neurotic Canadian Jew. But not, your, not like the typical neurotic Jew, not like the, the Woody Allen sort of stereotype. He's, he's a clean freak, which is well-known. But he's very self-aware. He's very good at, at rolling with the punches. He's very good at taking jabs, and he kind of sets himself up for that. And I appreciate that. I appreciate somebody who knows how to make themselves the fall guy. But he has some weird... I, I, you know, I don't watch Howie Mandel's show. I just randomly saw this. But he has some older comedian who's like kind of like his... Uh, what's his name? Like the guy who used to sit on the couch on the Ed Sullivan show, or like Andy Richter from the old Conan O'Brien, just the sidekick. He has this guy who's a sidekick who's really unfunny. And Bill Murr, <laughs> Bill Murr, Bill, <laughs> Bill Murr, <laughs> Bill Burr just right away picked up on that. This guy was just totally unnecessary. And so he spent most of the episode just destroying this sidekick because this sidekick on Howie Mandel's show, he'll just butt in in completely inopportune times and try to make some really bad joke. And it's almost like that's the point it's almost like the point of it is that this guy's unfunny and he tries to butt in at the wrong times but it completely like disrupted the flow and bill burr just right away was like a shark and so it was amazing to watch him once again just launch into this guy just this that guy would say something and there'd be this moment of silence and bill burr would just say something very short and I think as he said, he's like, it's like, you just suck all the air out of the room. Like when you talk, you just suck all the air, air out of the room. He said something like that to him. So it's like, it was entertaining just for that alone. About a new vape. Just changing gears here. My last vape, it was only a few days old and it was that Red Bang flavor. It's a Red Bull flavor, but I wonder too if it's, it's called Red Bang. And I wonder if it's supposed to be, it's an energy drink flavor. And I've wondered if it's deliberately referencing Bang. I didn't even find it on my own. A friend of mine had it. She was, she got really into Red Bang. She's like, you got to try this uh, vape. It's Red Bull flavored. It's called Red Bang. And I'm like, you say Bang? So maybe they're riffing on both Red Bull and Bang, but it, it tastes like an energy drink, which is the best vape flavor in the world. You know, I, I couldn't even dream of that. A vape that tastes like an energy drink. It's like something out of a dream. But I've been using those just continuously. 
Like I would like when I would run out of one, I would go a few days without one. For the last like since fall started though, I've just been buying them one after the other and going through them faster and faster, which isn't good, but here's the thing is like since I was 17 years old, I've always had a vice. You know, since you know, experimented with vices before that. Like I smoked weed for the first time in seventh grade, so I was like twelve or thirteen, first time I tried weed. I don't even think I got high, to be honest. Two or three times in seventh grade, my friend who's now a multi-time like convict just a criminal he was of course the first kid to try smoking weed and he was the first one to peer pressure me into it I don't even know if I inhaled right because that's the thing is when you're that young like you don't even I'd never inhaled anything I didn't even know how to breathe you know when I was 12 13 years old I didn't even know nobody even taught me how to breathe so I don't I didn't know what I was doing when he handed me the pipe and uh, so I don't even know that I inhaled properly, but I felt high. I thought I was high. I might have been high, but I might not have been. I might have just been so caught up in because because the thing is, like we the few the few times that I smoked weed in seventh grade, we would then like we went to a school dance and I think I was kind of high. But to be honest, I'm not entirely sure. You'd think you'd know. You'd think you'd know if you are inebriated for the first time in your life on marijuana, but I'm not sure. The school dance was very surreal, though. I mean, it, it very well could have been psychosomatic. You know, maybe just the, the fact that I was sitting there with a weed pipe to my mouth, that very well could have given me some sort of psychosomatic response where I was in a different state of mind. I don't know. But I got in trouble. I think it was like the second or third time that I tried smoking weed, like a teacher overheard me talking about it to a friend and she called my mom and I got home and my mom was waiting at the door and she goes, so what's this I hear about you smoking weed, about you smoking pot? And I was like, I vehemently denied it and that put me off from it for a couple more years. But by the time I was in high school, like by the time I was 17, like before that, it would be just if I came across it. But like by the time my friends and I were 17, like we were just into like we would drink and everything. But once we found weed and we could drive, because that's a difference, too, is like once you have a little more autonomy and control, it's awesome to be a teenager smoking weed. You can go where you want. You know, your parents give you a little more uh, a little more freedom because you have your own car or whatever. Your friends have cars. But since then, I mean, I, I pretty much continuously had a vice. And it wasn't long before I was just smoking weed every day. And then when I became, when I got into my 20s, you know, you throw in alcohol, occasionally something else. So, I mean, I've really, my, you know, half my life I've spent always having a vice of some kind. And so it's been weird the last few years of like only sometimes smoking weed. Like smoking weed for a few months and then not smoking weed for like six months to a year. It's just kind of weird because I do miss the days when I could just smoke weed all day every day and not think about it. There's a lot of bad, there's a lot of negatives to doing that. I'm not one of these people who's like, there's nothing wrong with smoking weed. It's totally harmless. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of issues with it. Not motivational. Like I would, I would never say that weed was destructive. Like the actual consuming weed was never destructive for me as i've said before it does give me uncontrollable munchies to where like if i'm not 
at night especially if i'm smoking pot and like i don't have a bunch of munchies as they call them to snack on and i hate that phrase i hate the term munchies but i will use it because i deserve to use a word that sounds stupid because what i do when i smoke weed is so stupid like just the amount of food that i will eat in a sitting i have no discipline whatsoever and I will just, until I go to bed, I will be constantly snacking. So I deserve to have to use the phrase munchies. Oh, you got the, you got munchies. Oh, case of the munchies, whatever that's stupid. It always sounds stupid to say it. But I deserve to use a stupid phrase because I look stupid. When I'm just snacking continuously, smoking weed and just snacking all night, I look like a freaking idiot. And... I would be way more embarrassed if somebody saw that than even if they saw me naked or going to the bathroom or doing something else that's typically embarrassing. I would rather see somebody like see me pissing and picking my nose at the same time. Sorry to give you that visual, but I would rather somebody see me pissing and picking my nose at the same time than to see me snacking when I'm high at the end of the night because my, my eyes get glazed over. I get shark eyes. I look vacant. And I'm just continuously like walking back and forth to the cupboard, getting just handfuls of things. I look disgusting. I look bloated. I bloat so quickly. I wake up and I look bloated. Like, and even during the last like, you know, five or six years of my life where I'm a fitness freak, it doesn't make a difference because I'll, I'll just work out that much more. You know, I'll go for longer walks. I'll go for runs. You know, I'll, I'll keep lifting weights and doing all that. But nothing really stops the bloat. Like, even if you are burning enough calories to not gain weight when you're doing that, nothing hides the bloat. So you look like a bloated idiot with glazed over shark eyes, just like floating between the couch and the cupboard. But anyway, I do miss like the days where weed was just something I did all day, every day. You know, I never, I never liked to be stoned at work. I never liked to be stoned at school. When I was in school, but if I had the day to myself, I just like to be high all day, just smoking weed all day. And I miss the days when I could do that. I just can't do that anymore. I start to become very self-aware. It triggered something inside of me at some point. It was probably around my late 20s where it just started to like trigger something in me when I did that. I started to realize I shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, there's always downsides to weed. Like I think about like it, it's, it's terrible for relationships with women. Like I've had, I've dated girls where it's like you meet them and there's sparks and you're like, oh, this is great. And almost every time that I've met a woman or started dating a woman, a girl, they're all girls to me. No, every time I, it's, it's usually been when I'm not smoking weed. And then like, as soon as I start smoking weed again, it's like, I stop caring. <laughs> not that I let myself go or anything like that. I just stop feeling the same level of investment. And I think back about like, like a girlfriend being like, oh, you know, like I, like my, there's, there's a work party. Oh, there's a work party this weekend. And like, I, it would be really nice if you go. Cause like I've told my boss and my coworkers so much about you. Just a really sweet, normal thing. Like, oh, there's a work party. Like work is having a Christmas party. And like, I, it'd be really nice if you go. Cause I've told my coworkers and my boss so much about you. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And the day comes and I've, I've been stoned all day and I'm just like, I'm sick. Tell them I'm sick. 
<laughs> and then I just, I just like pull up to, like I, I drop her off and I just pull up to the curb afterwards and she's like, I really, can you at least say hi to them? And I'm like, I stay in my car and I'm just like, oh, hi, hi. Yeah, that's not good. That's not good for a relationship when you do that. I'm sick. I'm sick and I'm just, I'm just, I'm going to stay at home while you're at the party and smoke weed. <laughs> Did that many times. So, you know, there's a lot of downsides to doing that. But I am a person though, where it's like at the end of the night, I always like to have something like it used to be a drink, you know, but weed was nice because it's not that disruptive. It's not that destructive. And you can just kind of go into the rest of your evening with it. But I miss that. You know, I miss that feeling. And so having these nicotine vapes, as someone who's never been a nicotine addict in my life, I have to admit, like, this phase of my life, not having any other vices, I'm just like, you know, I got to have something. I can go all day. But at the end of the night, I just like to have something to puff on. And so that's my justification is just that, you know, hey, I, I've, had a, I've had vices in my life my entire life, and now I don't have any. And while it's, not, it's a nice exercise to not have any vices, like the last few days, I'm just like, you know, it's Christmas. It's Christmas and then my birthday in a couple of days. Like, I, I should get myself a vape. But my last one, I, I got a red bang. And it, like after three days, it, it started leaking, which I've experienced before. But it started leaking. And not just leaking out the bottom a little bit, because I've had that happen. But it started like, f- like the, the fluid started flowing out the top of it like a volcano. And then it started doing this thing that a couple of them have done before, because these are the these are the ones you throw out when you're done with them. But it started going on by itself. And so it's leaking liquid and it's going on by itself. And I was just like, maybe this is a sign that I need to take a break. So I took a few days off, but come Christmas day night, I'm just like, you know, I need one, but I bought a different flavor. This is mint frost by a different brand called fire with a pH. It's not Red Bang by whatever company makes Red Bang. This is Fire Mint Frost. You know, sounds very Christmassy. Mint Frost. Christmas is very minty. It's very frosty. So this is my Christmas vape. I felt like I deserved it. But it's, it's always weird, though, when a device is just going on by itself. It creeps me out, you know, that it, speaking of phantoms, speaking of the phantoms that talk to me in my head, that challenge things I say, that argue with me, it's kind of like when your vape is going on by itself randomly. Like when I was a kid, I had this Terminator 2 doll. It was kind of like an action figure, but it was big. It was an Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator 2 plastic. It wasn't a doll because like a doll is soft, right? I guess not. I mean, Barbies are hard plastic. It was a doll. Let's just call it a doll. Let's stick with that. It was a Terminator doll. Terminator doll. And you press buttons on the back and Arnold Schwarzenegger in kind of a robotic Arnold Schwarzenegger voice who would say, like, I'll be back. It would just say all the, the famous lines from Terminator 2. And uh, it started to go on by itself. Like, my mom would be home when I was at school and she would just hear it. To the point where it scared her. Like she would just be doing stuff in the house and she would hear this Terminator voice just say like hasta la vista and I'll be back. And so I think she actually got rid of it for that reason. It was like this possessed Terminator doll. 
Oh, you think Chucky's scary? Well, this is a possessed Terminator doll. So my vape reminded me of that. My vape reminded me of my possessed Terminator doll. Speaking of old movies, you know, Pulp Fiction. Uh, Pulp Fiction. I was something like brought Pulp Fiction to mind, and I read an interview with the guy who played the Gimp, because that was a pretty pivotal scene when I was a kid. Like I've talked about this before, but you know, rape scenes in movies. They all, they're always way more impactful than murder scenes. I mean, like thinking about the movies that I watched growing up, it was just murder left and right. Everything was just nonstop murder. You know, speaking of Arnold, like one of my favorite movies growing up was Commando, which is just continuous murder. There's very little in that movie that isn't just continuous murder. I think that somebody tallied up the body count in that, and it's huge. Because he goes to the island at the end, and he just kills everybody. And I didn't know this, but the the girl in that, the love interest in that, is Tommy Chong's daughter. Had no idea. Her name's like Radon Chong. Never really made the connection. Because she's like half black, half Tommy Chong. And I just never made the connection that that was Tommy Chong's daughter. It kind of blew my mind when I found that out. But anyway, I was thinking about like Pulp Fiction because everybody associates that with the rape scene. And I had this boss. I was, this is why I was thinking about it. The reason I was thinking about Pulp Fiction was I remembered this conversation with an old boss that I had where we were in our office and one of my coworkers was talking about Pulp Fiction. He just, he'd brought it up for some reason. I think people were just talking about movies they like. And my boss happened to be in the room at the time just doing something and he butted in. He wasn't part of the conversation. And he just like butted in. And I'll never forget this. This boss, who was like this new agey kind of therapist guy. He just goes, ooh, Pulp Fiction. He's like, I, I can't talk about Pulp Fiction. He's like, you know, every time I think about that movie, he's like, I'm just reminded that within a five-mile radius of wherever you are right now, I just know there's somebody in a sex dungeon being abused. And we were all just left speechless because he, he wasn't joking. He just right away. So, so you, it's again what I'm talking about. We're like, you can watch all the gruesome murder scenes in the world. But like one rape scene in a movie is enough to traumatize even this guy. Even a therapist. But it was just so funny where it was just it was one of those just weird like revelatory moments where you learn about how someone's brain thinks he's somebody was just like oh yeah you know like in pulp fiction blah 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 and he goes "Ooh, can't talk about pulp fiction i'm just it just makes me it makes me realize that within a five mile radius no matter where you are there's somebody in a sex dungeon being abused i've never had that thought ever in my life and like is he thinking about like somebody who's voluntarily in a sex dungeon or is he thinking about somebody who's like kidnapped in a sex dungeon or both? Is he thinking about a gimp or is he thinking about like Ving Rhames getting raped in a sex dungeon? It was just one of those moments where you're left speechless and I'll never forget it because <laughs> he just butted in with that. But I ended up reading an interview with the guy who played the gimp on Christmas Eve. You know, I go from reading about Columbine in the days leading up to Christmas Eve, to just reading an interview with the actor who played the gimp in Pulp Fiction, which I think was probably my introduction to that idea. Like, I'm sure I'd probably seen Leather Daddy stuff in passing, but maybe not. 
Maybe that was the first time I was ever introduced to the idea of like the leather daddy and the gimp mask. And, you know, I don't even know if gimp is a normal term for that. You know, is the term was the term gimp just was that just invented for Pulp Fiction or did that actually refer to that sort of person? Was a gimp mask a term for that sort of leather mask before Pulp Fiction or do people call it that because of Pulp Fiction? I don't know. Clearly, I think about these things. But I was just kind of curious, like I, I wasn't actually deliberately looking up an interview with this guy. I didn't type in like Pulp Fiction gimp interview. But I typed in the actor's name just to see who he was, because you don't see what he actually looks like. And I was curious. And I read an interview with him and there was something in there where he said that after the movie came out, like right after it came out in the theater, he got home and he had 15 messages on his answering machine. And, you know, this is the mid 90s. So he got home and there were 15 messages on his answering machine from random men who had seen Pulp Fiction in the theater. And they wait. And he, he, he said, like, he's like, they waited until the ending credits to see who played the gimp. And he was like, they had to look me up in the phone book. And then call me. And they left messages for him. They were like, if you ever want to meet up. So these guys saw Pulp Fiction and they were like, oh, there's a gimp. The guy who played the gimp, he must he must do that in real life. Maybe maybe my maybe my old boss was one of those guys. I don't know, but I just thought that was so funny. Where I was like, man, that's that's insane, because the gimp himself, the actor who played the gimp, he said he had these messages from men who were essentially propositioning him, and he said it, what got him about it was just that they they had to have waited till the end credits to see the actor's name. Then they had to look him up in the phone book. They had to like write down or remember that name and go home and look it up in the phone book or call the operator and then reach out to him. And I was like, that's an interesting piece of trivia. I bet that happened all the time. You know, because I heard about uh, like some of the Sopranos guys, like James Gandolfini. I heard a story where James Gandolfini went to a restaurant, an Italian restaurant, and the people there like thought he was Tony Soprano. Like they were talking to him as if he was actually Tony Soprano and act asking him questions about the Sopranos as if he was Tony Soprano. And he said it, it just blew his mind because it was like they he had to tell them he was like, you understand that I'm an actor who plays that character. And they were like, yeah, yeah. But when what's it like to like what's Polly actually like like what's what's it actually like in the pork store when you guys are hanging out there it's like people were a asking him questions about the Sopranos as if he actually lived that life and so there's people who do that there's people who see movies and watch tv shows who don't actually understand that you're just playing the gimp you're just playing Tony Soprano that's terrifying that's like a car driving with their headlights off that level of disconnect where it's just like, wow. Like somebody saw Pulp Fiction and saw the gimp and thought, maybe he does that in real life too. Maybe if I leave a message on his answering machine, he'll play Leather Daddy for me. Oh, Tony Soprano, James Gandolfini, he's in an Italian restaurant. There's a real mobster here. I better go talk to him. It just blows my mind. But, you know, Quentin Tarantino, he said that the, the rape scene in Pulp Fiction was sort of an ode 
to Deliverance, which makes sense, because, you know, the, the rape scene in Deliverance is obviously one of the most horrific scenes in any movie ever, and it's what most people remember about it. And, you know, Deliverance is one of my all-time favorite movies, not because of the rape scene, but partially because of it, because that's real horror. Like, that scene is so horrific that it's like, I don't watch Deliverance and go, like, I don't get off on the rape scene. But you tell people that and they think like, because I've told people before, they've been like, what, do you, what are some of your favorite movies? And I'm like, oh, Deliverance. They're like, you must love horrific male rape in the woods. And it's like, that makes the story better. The whole movie is great. The whole story. Like, as I've said before, Deliverance is like Stand By Me for adults. You know, there's four guys going on an adventure. And then there's this awful scene. Like instead of a, instead of like Stand By Me where there's a leech on the kid's balls, there's a rape scene. And I've read the book. The book's incredible. I highly recommend the book Deliverance. Uh, it's also one of my best friends. It's one of his favorite movies. And I actually, I was visiting him and he had the book and I read it in a day. It was that good that we had a day of just doing nothing. I was staying with him and his girlfriend and he's like, oh, by the way, I have Deliverance. Have you read it? And I was like, no. And he's like, here, read it while you're here. <laughs> That's how I know somebody's a friend of mine is they're like, oh, I have a copy of Deliverance right here. And the rape scene's a little different in the book. Like, it doesn't have the whole squeal like a pig thing, I don't think. What's weird about the book is Ed, the main character, John Voight's character in the movie, in the book, he's like unbelievably hairy. Like, they talk about how he has hair all over his neck. He's like an ape. Like, in Deliverance, they say this in the movie, but, like, one of the rednecks, like, before the rape scene, one of the rednecks calls him, like, a fucking ape, and it's really hateful. It's really fucked up. It's the way he calls him an ape is just really sick. It always stood out to me, and when you read the book, that character is described as extremely hairy to the point where he has, like, hair all over his neck. Like, those guys who, like, their facial hair doesn't end, like, halfway down their neck, it ends, like it basically goes all the way down their neck and connects to their chest hair. That's how the character is described in the book, which is a really weird detail. And I like that author, James Dickey. It's the only book of his I've ever read, but I don't like poetry. I actually mock and scorn poetry, most poetry, but James Dickey's actually an excellent poet too. He wrote this poem about Wolverines. (laughs) He wrote a poem about the Wolverine. It's really good. Just kind of macho natural poetry but you know James Dickey Deliverance is a great book but the movie like when people are when you say that that's one of your favorite movies and keep in mind that was like one of the biggest movies when it came out everybody saw it tons of and I I love the idea that like tons of normal people went to the movie theater and like oh there's this new adventure movie there's this new river adventure movie and as I've said time I think I I talk about this on the very first every night's a school night because I play what I call a river song, how rivers are always associated with darkness. When movies involve a river, bad stuff happens. Anytime there's a river in a movie, there's always something very dark that happens. And deliverance is the epitome of that. But river songs too. Like I think I played, I think it's Billy Hall headed to the river a country song, but I, I remember on, I think the first every night's a school night playing that song and talking about rivers, river songs, river movies, there's river movies, 
and something bad always happens to people. But yeah, when you mention deliverance, it's like, well, just what I was going to say is just the, the fact that all these normal people, like people probably went on dates to go see deliverance. They're like, oh, I'm on a first date. This movie deliverance just came out. It looks like a good, like rugged adventure movie. And you're sitting there with like maybe a girl, a woman that you barely know. And you just see this horrific male rape scene because it's just unbelievably horrific. And I think that the guy, I want to say the actor, because the actor who plays the main rapist, he, uh, I think he was just a local theater actor. No, I think he's in other stuff, but I want to say he wasn't well known. And what's really fucked up about that is apparently he was basically method acting where like on set, he would stare at Ned Beatty, like the guy that he rapes, Ned Beatty, who I, in my entire life, I thought that Ned Beatty was Warren Beatty, Ned Beatty, however you say his name. I thought that Ned Beatty was Warren Beatty's brother. I just assumed they're both actors. There's so many of these family acting clans. I was like, Ned Beatty. And when you think that, what's so weird about that is you kind of think that they're, you start to see a resemblance. Like your brain tries to reconcile this thing that's not actually true. But because his name's Ned Beatty and there's a famous actor named Warren Beatty, I just assumed they were brothers and my brain kind of filled in the gaps. Like my, my brain kind of like saw a resemblance between their faces that isn't actually there because they're not even related. But on set, apparently, like between takes and just when they were just, you know, acting like normal people eating lunch on the movie set, apparently the, the main rape and redneck would like sit down in front of Ned Beatty and just stare at him. Like he was doing some serious method acting and to the point where uh, Burt Reynolds actually threatened to kick the guy's ass. Like Burt Reynolds, just like in the movie, it's Burt Reynolds who saves Ned Beatty. I guess he doesn't really save him because the damage is already done, but it's, it's Burt Reynolds who saves the guy from the clutches of these rednecks. And on the actual movie set, I guess Burt Reynolds had to intervene and tell this guy to fuck off. He had to be like, you know, I'm going to kick your ass if you keep doing this because this guy, this guy was method acting. He was actually pretending to be preoccupied with Ned Beatty. Probably one of the reasons why that scene is so messed up. Um, but it's so funny to me, like if you tell somebody, because I mean, if you tell somebody that, you know, Pulp Fiction is one of your favorite movies, people don't go, oh, you must love that male rape scene. But for some reason, if you tell people you you love Deliverance, they're like, oh, you must love that scene. But I wasn't surprised to find out that Quentin Tarantino deliberately, he was deliberately taking inspiration from that scene because it's, it's just so impactful. And so seeing Pulp Fiction as a kid, that scene was just, it was like all my friends talked about. My entire group of friends was just like, what's up with that scene? Did you see that? Because you've never seen anything like that. As a kid, you've never seen anything like that. And there are few movies that have anything like that. And especially a male rape scene. Just insane. But effective. You know, the idea is to... It's a horror scene. And reading this interview with the guy who played the gimp, he was saying how, like, that day on set, like, when they were filming that scene how everybody was taking it dead serious. Like he said, going into that scene, nobody was kidding around. Everybody just, everybody knew that that was going to be 
a memorable, impactful scene. They just knew, like they had read the script. And so they knew that that scene was just going to be completely off the rails and insane. And so he said, like being on the set, everybody just took it dead serious. Like they had a mission to do. Who knew? You know, who knew that (laughs) making a scene like that was something that people would go into, you know, like they're, they're on a mission. But, you know, you can't, you know, because you don't want it to be slapstick. You don't want it to be funny. You want it to be horror. And there's something about that particular scenario that is so horrific. Maybe it's because as a man, that's just, you know, your greatest fear or something. I don't even know what it is. I don't know. I wonder what a woman feels when she watches that. What does a woman feel? I'm looking to get a woman's perspective on the deliverance and Pulp Fiction's horrific male rape scenes. But there's something about those that they just stand out in your brain. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. What else do we got here? What else do we got? I'm feeling less tired, but I can feel myself kind of crashing. I really should get some rest. Just ended on that note. <laughs> now, this has been just a this is a, a fireside chat. No purpose, no theme. Just going from Bill Burr, Bill Burr causing podcast hosts to get therapy to vapes, to horrific male rape scenes in popular movies. No, but I haven't kept up on movies. I don't know. I don't even know what movies are doing anymore. You know, movies just sort of lost their luster for me. And that might just be me. You know, I, I can't say that my opinions on movies are the right opinions. Because, you know, I don't endorse anything that I say. I mean, I, I believe what I say. Even if it's just in good fun. But I always think about Harmony Corinne on David Letterman. Where he was promoting his kind of experimental book. And I highly recommend watching those. I know I've recommended those before. But I highly recommend the Harmony Corinne. I think that's how you say his name. K-O-R-I-N-E. The guy who made Gummo. But he did three interviews on David Letterman way back when. It's just a great performance all around because you, you really get to see what a an asshole David Letterman actually is. You really get to understand what an asshole he is because he doesn't know how to understand somebody like Harmony, who, to be fair, is being extremely obtuse and weird. But there's a part where, like, David Letterman's talking about Harmony Corinne's book, which is this kind of experimental. I've never read it. But it's this kind of experimental book where it's like there's a page that just says Hepburn and there's nothing else on it. And they talk about that. And David Letterman's like, what, what does this even mean? But at one point, you know, David Letterman's like, you know, well, do you recommend this book? And Harmony's just like, well, you know, I, I don't endorse it. And David Letterman's like, what? You, you don't even endorse your own book? And Harmony's like, I, I would probably read something older. <laughs> and Letterman can't comprehend that. It's like you're here to recommend, you're here to promote your book, and you don't even endorse it. But I love that because I totally relate to that. You know, I don't endorse what I do. I think that I, you know, I agree with myself. You know, I, I completely agree with what I say, if you can believe that. 
but I would never endorse it. Like I would never expect anybody else to have the same views I have. I would never expect anybody else to share my takes. I would never expect anybody to live the same way I live. I would actually feel disgusted if they did. I mean, I think there's some stuff like every once in a while I'll say something on here that if, if somebody's listening, there's some stuff that I think is just good general advice. Maybe you can take something from it. But, you know, so, like I, I never want to endorse anything that I say or do like and by endorse, I mean, like promote it to say, like, you should do this, too, or you should think this, too. Like, I'm not, life isn't about that to me. Life isn't about trying to, like, recommend, because, I mean, the stuff that's led me to where I am, you know, it's based on, like, a very specific path that I've taken. It's based on my points of reference in life. And it's not that I don't think anybody should take, like, if I say something serious, it's not that I don't think somebody should take me seriously or they should dismiss it. But it's still, it's just based on my points of reference and like everything that brought me to that. And sometimes it is just a flippant comment. Sometimes it is just a joke. Sometimes it is just a a view that's been shaped by like whatever I've experienced and observed. And I can try to be objective, but it's, it's very difficult to endorse things. And I think that I would feel like a deep despair inside if I found out that somebody was like, oh, I'm going to try to do, I'm going to try to like take on what you're taking on. I'd be like, don't do that. I don't endorse my lifestyle. I don't endorse the way I think. There's a weird phenomenon with that, though, where like people do have influence over each other, especially if they have some kind of power. Like, I was thinking about, like, my friend who went and stayed with Crispin Glover, you know, while he wasn't there a lot of the time, like, she was staying with his girlfriend, who was her best friend, when they were with him, like, if they got, because Crispin Glover, he was, he was apparently on this, like, ultra unique diet. I don't know if it was, I think he was only eating raw food, but it wasn't just the typical raw diet. It was an ultra specific, kind of like this esoteric diet that he was on. But he demanded that everybody else be on it, too. Like, if you were going out to eat with Crispin Glover, he basically demanded that you eat the way he ate. And I could understand if, like, you're in his castle, which they were. They were staying in his castle. I could understand if you're just, like, in his castle and he was like, well, this is the food we got. You can either eat what's here or starve. You know, I could understand that sort of take, almost like a parent telling their kid, like, this is what we're having for dinner and that's it. This is what we're having for dinner, and that's it. You know, I could see if you take, like, a parental approach of just, like, hey, you know, this is my house. This is my castle, literally my castle, and we're going to eat what's here. But it was a sort of thing where, like, anybody who was part of his entourage, he expected them to eat the way he ate. And I've seen that phenomenon play out where, like, one time I was at a work meeting. We were out at a restaurant for a work meeting, and the CEO of the company was there. And of course, everybody let him order first. And uh, it was it was a lunch meeting. So and he said, like he even said, he was like, oh, order whatever you want. You know, we're having a meeting here. You know, it's on the company. You know, the company's paying for your meal. And he ordered a salad, like a big salad, like a big lunch salad. And it was interesting because everybody else then in turn ordered a salad too. And you could tell they were doing it because the CEO did. It was like he set the tone. It was like, oh, the CEO has decided that we're having salads, so we're all going to order a salad. And I was the last one to order. And it wasn't that I was trying to be different. I mean, I don't choose what I want to eat based on what other people are eating. 
I don't rebel against other people by ordering something else. But when it got to me, I was just like, oh, I'll have the, uh, I'll have the Southwest chicken sandwich. And there were like two or three people at this work meeting who like flinched. Like they looked at me. And one of them even made a comment. They were like, oh, you're not getting a salad? And it was the weirdest thing because it was like the pack had decided, like like the leader had decided to get a salad. And so the entire pack just followed suit. They were like, I guess we're getting salads. And then when I ordered a Southwest chicken sandwich, it was like that made them uncomfortable. It was like dissonance. It was like I wasn't doing what they were all doing. And it's it's such a a silly observation, but it's a real phenomenon. And I've noticed it again and again. It's like there was a consensus, an unspoken consensus. And honestly, the CEO didn't care at all. Like he wasn't even paying attention. But it was like all the other people, maybe they were trying to kiss his ass or they were just trying to like synchronize. But I, I remember like people flinching and looking at me. Like as if I had done something wrong. And one of them, who was the biggest ass kisser of all, he looked at me and he was like, you're not getting a salad? You're getting a sandwich, huh? And I was just like, yeah. And it made me think of the Crispin Glover thing too, where like in in his case, like he demands that everybody eat his diet if they're with him. And there's people like that. I mean, we've seen a lot of that the last couple of years where like, yeah, maybe there are things you do. Like I wear a mask. You know, I got the first two vac. I got the vac, the first two shots, you know, whatever. Like, I've done the bare minimum. But, you know, a big part of what's going on right now, like like a lot of the problems, and I'm not going to spin off too, too far into this, but just I'm noticing again and again how, like, a lot of the dissonance that's going on in our society has to do with, like, yeah, there, there's an element of it that, like, some people truly, deeply believe, and maybe they're right. I'm not even going to say that I'm right here, but they truly believe that like everybody needs to do the same thing right now. And if you're not doing the same thing as everybody else, you're creating dissonance. And they've channeled that into this thing where like you're causing harm or you're, you're endangering people. You're doing something wrong. You're being self-serving, but it kind of plays into that mindset of like, we're all getting salads. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Ordering a sandwich? The CEO said, we're getting salads. We're all getting salads because he's getting salads. You know, it's, it's that sort of mindset. I think that's a big part of what's been going on. And it's one of the reasons why there is so much dissonance. Because a lot of people have different opinions on things. And maybe some people are ignorant. Maybe some people are misguided. I don't know. Maybe I'm misguided. I don't care, though. You know, I don't care if I'm misguided about some of this stuff. Because I have been willing to do the bare minimum. But like I've, I've just noticed where it's like people expect this consensus right now. Like they expect this level of agreement. And if you don't go along with that, there is this dissonance that eats away at people. And it's, it involves everything. You know, it involves everything. And they can't really handle that. They can't really handle that element of dissonance in the same way that that guy at the work meeting, the lunch meeting seemed visibly, I mean, verbally, he verbally expressed that he was feeling like some kind of dissonance about the fact that I wasn't ordering a salad like everybody else. And that's such a silly example, but I I felt it and I noticed it. And that guy said it, 
He said it out loud. And that's going on like all over the place now. It's something that goes on to begin with, but you see it with groups of friends, you know, where the more dominant person in a group of friends starts doing something and everybody kind of synchronizes. And it's not as simple as following trends. It's not as simple. I mean, it's almost like a mycelium effect. You know, it's almost like those mushrooms, the fungus, where it's like they're all connected underneath the surface of the earth and they communicate that way. It's almost like that sort of effect where it's like the memo goes out and there's this sort of like mycelium-like expectation that all of the fungi, not to be confused with the key lime guy, but all of the fungi are kind of expected to follow suit. Like the, the message goes out and the expectation is that everybody follows suit. And when that doesn't happen, it's like there's some kind of dissonance that gets created. And some people can deal with that just fine. You know, some people are fine with that. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there are some people who naturally thrive under those conditions. I think there are some people, I mean, there are some people who are oppositionally defiant and they will pointlessly rebel against anything and everything. But there's a lot of people, too, who are just okay with the dissonance. They are just okay with ordering what they want for lunch. They are just okay with, you know, a good example is like when I was in high school, I hung out with, like, I was always into metal. I was I was always into my own thing. But I had a group of friends who were all really into, like, the indie rock at that time. And uh, they all started wearing girl pants. Like, a memo went out. And I think this was something that was going on all across the country where, like, indie rock dudes started buying girl pants. It was before skinny jeans were made available. It was before like the whole skinny jean trend, which I, I just never liked the way those look. You know, I, I just never liked the way those look. Like just aesthetically, they never look good. But it was before they actually started like mass producing what they called skinny jeans for men. So as a result, my, my friends wanted that look before it was available because they weren't posers. Like they were doing their own thing. They, they had an interest in something that was kind of emerging and new. They weren't just following like a big trend that was sweeping the nation. They were individuals, but they were kind of all into the same thing. And so they all kind of liked the same look, but I don't know, like I, I missed the, con I missed the meeting where this was decided, but they all started wearing like four or five of them, you know, easily four or five of them all started buying women's pants because they fit very snugly. Like the cut of the pants was very snug. And I think part of it was sort of like in opposition to the insanely baggy pants that had been popular. Because at that point, I was still wearing like jeans that were, you know, way too big for me. And I was still wearing like cargo pants that were like three sizes too big. So I think like some of this girl pant thing, I think it was kind of in response to the fact that for years, everybody had been wearing insanely baggy clothing. And so it was kind of in response to that. It's it's like the phenomenon I've talked about before where like, you know, for 10 years, cars will be very boxy. And then all of a sudden, a company will make a car that's more rounded and people will be like, oh, wow, look at that. It's different. And then you have 10 years of cars having a more rounded design where every company starts making very rounded looking cars. And then somebody will make another squared off car again, a boxy car. 
And people are like, look at that. You know, it's contrast. So it's like, I think part of that, like wearing tight clothes was sort of like, hey, we've spent the last 10 years wearing insanely baggy clothes and we're realizing how ridiculous this looks. So let's do the opposite. Let's start wearing like clothes that just completely hug our body. And I wasn't, I didn't share their interests. I wasn't into the same things they were in, but they were my friends and they were cool, you know, but it was weird because it just felt like all of a sudden, like this entire group though was wearing girl pants. And I feel like it was kind of like a mycelium effect. Because like one of my good friends, my best friend, he was kind of the leader of our pack. And I was always cool with that because I respected him. And the reality is like no matter where you are, somebody will become kind of a de facto leader. There is always somebody who kind of, even if it's never spoken, even if everybody involved is an individual in their own right, somebody will usually kind of pick up the slack and become the leader. It's just something that naturally happens. There, there are these hierarchies that naturally form in social groups. I mean, I've heard that about prison, where it's like just even in prison, among ethnic groups in prison, one guy will kind of set himself apart, even outside of gangs. You know, I'm not even just talking about gangs, but like within ethnic groups in prison, there will be a guy who's the guy that you go and talk to. And that happens in high school. That happens everywhere. And I think it was, you know, the guy who was kind of the leader of our group of friends. I think he started wearing girl pants and it just like the memo went out, the mycelium responded. And it's just interesting to look back on that because I mean, that's such a bold statement because none of these guys were gay. And you know what, you know, I think like people made little asides about it. Like people would make little asides like, dude, that, that dude's wearing girl pants. But they didn't get mocked or called gay like they were all they had friends, you know, they were respected by people in school in their own right. So nobody made fun of them somehow. Maybe just little asides like I mean, I kind of mocked them a little bit. I was like, oh, girl pants, huh? Because they would go shopping together. You know, they would go shopping together to buy girl pants and like compare notes, but they were straight men. They just had this new fashion that they were into. And you know what? Girls liked it. Like, they were way more popular with girls than I was. I was a fat metalhead, you know, I who wore baggy cargo pants, you know? Like, I mean, girls preferred the skinny dudes wearing girl pants. So, I mean, whatever they were doing was working out in that regard. But I always thought it was interesting just how that happened. I mean, it's, I've thought about this before when, like, frat boys, about 10 or 15 years ago, frat boys just started wearing pink shirts. And I don't feel like the national committee of frat boys got together and were like, yeah, we've decided that um, to let all of the houses know, to let all of the chapters know that it is now cool to wear pink polo shirts with the collar popped up. What they, what, what, and we're going to call it a popped collar. We're going to call it a popped collar. You know, I don't, it's not like there was a national meeting of the frat boy leadership and they sent a memo out saying like, hey, it's now okay. You know how, you know how we all thought it was gay to wear pink? Well, you know, it's going to be cool now. And actually the most masculine guys, the frat boys, we're going to wear pink as a group. All of us are going to wear pink as a group. Imagine that. Like, imagine telling somebody that in, like, 1998. 
being like, oh, you know, all the most masculine guys, all of the jocks and the athletes who live in the same house together at colleges, they're all going to collectively wear pink shirts together. It'd sound weird, but kind of like with the girl pants, it's like a memo, just like the mycelium, like a message was distributed among the mycelium that this is okay now. And I remember people talking about that. Like, I remember people saying like, hey, you notice how frat boys are all wearing pink shirts? But kind of like with the girl pants, like people might make little asides quietly, but it wasn't like people like outright opposed it. It wasn't like they were like, you guys are gay, dude, 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 you, you guys are gay. You know, it's not like people confronted them about it. It was like they just understood that this group of guys is doing that now. And I always thought that phenomenon was interesting because like nobody really called them out. It just became cool. And I mean, you could say that about any trend. I mean, it's kind of like what I was saying about the trench coats. Where like long before Columbine, years before Columbine, I noticed that nerdy guys, dorky guys who wanted to look badass, started to wear duster trench coats. And that was a national phenomenon. It was before the Matrix. I'm not a Matrix fan, by the way. Never was. I don't hate it. I don't hate the Matrix. But when it came out, I was just like, I'm not, I don't, there's something about this aesthetic that bothers me. But this is long before the Matrix and all that. It was just a memo went out. You know, some sort of psychic memo was distributed among the mycelium saying like, hey, if you're a nerdy guy and you want to look badass, even though nobody will think you look badass, but if you want to feel like a badass, buy a big trench coat. Buy a big baggy trench coat. Kind of this, a similar thing, though, where it's like something just goes out among the people. And you see this expressed in fashion. You know, and, it's, and someone just picks up on it and they start doing it. And you can't manufacture that either. You know, you can't manufacture that. It's like somebody has to be influential. Kind of like my friend... You know, where it's like, I'm sure there were other guys. Like, I'm sure the girl pants thing was going on. Well, I know it was going on. It wasn't just going on in my school. It was going on, you know, among indie rock dudes throughout the entire country. But, you know, a particularly influential member of my friend group started doing it. And the other guys in my friend group, who were all cool, like, they weren't desperate for approval from their peers. Like, they were all individuals They had friends, girls liked them, they had interests, but they were just like, oh, I guess we can just wear girl pants. And it's probably like some influential frat boy probably just was like, you know what, I'm going to wear a pink shirt. And the other frat boys were just like, yeah, you know what, pink. This is the era of pink polo shirts. Just interesting how that works. You know, there is this sort of psychic effect, and I think it plays out with everything we do. But it's interesting with fashion, because I'm not a fashion-oriented guy. Like, I'm the kind of guy who, like, I've always just known what I, you know, especially, like, getting in shape when I was an adult, when I realized that I could wear whatever I want, because everything will basically fit me, when I no longer had to worry about, like, what will hug my gut. I was just like, oh, I'm just, I like certain colors, I like, I like certain styles of shirts. I like certain styles of pants. But I never like think like, there's never really any thought beyond that. 
It's just like, is this something I like? And, you know, I've, I've seen this thing, you know, not to get into the teenage thing, but I've seen this thing now where, like, some of the kids who are going through this kind of gender identity crisis today, I've seen where, like, they categorize their clothes based on, like, what's masculine and what's feminine. And some of these teenagers will, like, go to their closet in the morning and be like, do I want to wear a, a feminine shirt today or a masculine shirt? And it's so funny to me. Like, it's a lot of thought. It takes a lot of thought to do that. And, you know, I think that's all like a, you know, sort of a mycelium effect as well. I think all of this stuff that I've been commenting on with teenagers today, I think it's similar. I think it's almost like a psychic memo went out and kids are responding accordingly. But uh, there's also more going on with that, you know, because it is so um, explicit. Like the fact that kids are waking up in the morning and going like, do I want to look more like a masculine person today or do I want to look more like a feminine person? Do I want to dress like a man today or do I want to dress like a woman? Like I've never once thought that. I've never once, you know, gone to my closet and thought like, do I want to look like this today or do I want to look like that? Like maybe if I wear a band shirt or something, maybe that's the the closest I can relate to it. Like, do I want to go out into the world and have people looking at my chest today wondering what that symbol on my shirt means i guess i guess that's the most that i think about it but some people are very concerned with that and i mean there's a much deeper kind of political phenomenon going on with that stuff with the masculine and the feminine whereas i don't think that frat boys when they started wearing pink shirts they weren't like oh you know do i want to wear my feminine pink shirt today i don't think that ever even crossed their mind You know, maybe they were aware of the fact that what they were doing was kind of rebellious. Like, hey, I'm a macho alpha type guy. So I'm going to do I'm going to wear a color that people don't even associate with men. Like my friends with the girl pants, Like, I guarantee they didn't wake up in the morning and go like, should I wear my girl pants to look feminine today? They weren't actually trying to look feminine. But what's funny is there, there kind of was this expectation that like everybody in my friend group was doing that or like this kind of assumption. Like there was a time that we went bowling with a bunch of people and this girl was with us and I was sitting in one of the chairs by the bowling lane and like she reached over and grabbed like the ankle of my pants. Not like not in a weird way, but she just like felt the material and she goes, these aren't girl pants. And I said, no. Because I think like she just kind of expected like she was part of this group of friends where all the guys were wearing girl pants. And I think she just was like, oh, whoa, you're not wearing girl pants. And I was like, no, I'm not. And that was it. There was nothing more to it. But it's like it shows you like because that was going on, it was there was this kind of expectation. And you can see, though, where that sort of. That was sort of like a prelude to the whole skinny jeans trend where like soon after that, within a few years of that. You know, that's probably like 2003 or something. Within a couple years, big companies started manufacturing pants for men that had the same cut as women's pants. And what that is, it's like basically they hug your entire leg. I mean, we know, you know, we know what girls' jeans were cut like if you were around back then. And it's like basically all they did is start mass producing pants that were for men they said they were for men 
but they mass produced these pants. And like the only difference between the pants that my friends were wearing in the early 2000s that were actually made for women and the pants that men wore for the rest of the decade is that they were telling people skinny jeans. And I hate that phrase, skinny jeans. Uh, oh, dude, dude, he's wearing skinny jeans. But uh, the only difference is just that one of them had an F on the label. One of them had an M. Like one of them you bought in the women's section. The other one you bought in the men's section. That was really the only difference. But it was interesting. You know, it was just an interesting phenomenon. And you know what? I didn't judge my friends for doing it at all. It definitely wasn't for me. But I didn't judge them for it. Like I had one friend. He was a very tall, skinny guy. And he took it to a whole other level. I don't know if there was any kind of competitive element to it. But like he started wearing like skin tight jeans to the point where they looked like tights. He was wearing jeans that, and he was a skinny guy too. He had like no thighs. Because that was the thing that was really awkward is like when guys started wearing skinny jeans, even fat guys started to wear them. That was really fucked. Like even fat guys were like, oh, skinny jeans are cool. So I'm going to wear them. And it's like bad idea, dude. As a former fat guy, as an FFG, I can tell you, as both a, a key lime guy and a former fat guy, when I started to see fat guys wearing skinny jeans, I was like, bad idea, man. Like, my friend who's built like a fucking stork can wear those because he's like, he doesn't even have thighs. You got big fat thighs that look absolutely horrible in those jeans, dude. I guess I think about fashion more than I thought. Because I'm like, man, he's, that dude's got fat thighs. But you can't help but notice that. Like, if you're a fat dude, you know, your waist and your thighs are so much bigger than the rest of your body. Skinny jeans are not flattering. But it's funny that it took that. Like, it, it took making jeans for men and putting them in the men's section for that to take off. And I don't know, you know, I don't know how people feel about the color pink now. You know, I, I've never cared what, you know, like I, I had a friend I hung out with a few years ago and he would always wear pink for some reason. I think he just loved the color. I was aware of it. I was like, that guy wears a lot of pink. He was a straight guy, but I was just like, he wears a lot of pink. I guess he just likes the color. You're aware of it, but it's like, I don't know. I've never judged people for that kind of thing. Like, like I've never thought that people need to do that. I just judge people with fat thighs wearing pants that are too skinny for them. I mean, it's sort of like the thing, like, I never cared about this. Actually, you know what? I always found what they called muffin tops. That's another phrase I hated. So many phrases that I freaking hated when they came out. Like, muffin top. Oh, dude, she's got a muffin top. Dude, she's muffin topping. Her, her jeans are too uh, tight for her. I was always attracted to that. Now, there's two things from the probably early 2000s, maybe late 90s, but two things that... I had an almost fetishistic attraction to one was a muffin top, not a grotesque muffin top because people were very judgmental about that. And I'll, I'll tell you the two things in a sec here. One of them is muffin tops, but you know, there was something grotesque. Like if a woman was too large and her gut is sticking out, like there's, there's an amount that is acceptable, but if you have like a full on gut that is hanging over your pants, not attractive at all. But like the like kind of like a side muffin top, like I was I always found that attractive. 
you know, I always found it attractive. Like if a girl was in a, like kind of a, a short top and really tight jeans and just like a little, she had like a little bit of extra weight that kind of hung over the sides. I always found that really attractive. You know, maybe, I don't know, maybe not to a fetishistic degree, but I liked it. But the other thing too, is like the whole whale tail phenomenon. Like that was the era of low rise dream, uh, low rise dreams. That's what I'm really talking about is low rise dreams. But no, that was the era of low rise jeans. And I mean, I, I found it insanely attractive when a girl had like a thong or a G string sticking out. And I, I won't get too lecherous here. I won't get too lecherous, but I loved that. Like you go to the computer lab at school and you just see a bunch of those. That was a good day. To the point where like I couldn't look away. Like I could not look away. <laughs> like I would see that and I would just be like, I, I can't not look at that. And that's a unique, like, that's not something that men had ever experienced before. Like there had never been another time in history. Because first of all, like women weren't even wearing pants decades earlier. But there had, ne- there had never been another time in history where women were wearing one pants, two low rise jeans and three wearing freaking thongs that stuck out the back. But I always just found that insanely attractive, especially and here. I am getting lecherous, especially when it was um, unexpected. Like every once in a while, there'd be a girl who seemed really good, like she seemed really like proper and good. And you go to the library or the computer lab or you'd have class with her and you'd see that and you'd be like, holy, I, I had no idea. I had no idea. I, I learned you learned something about her. I just learned something about her. And that made it that much better because there were some girls where you just kind of expected it. Like not even that they were not even that you were like, oh, she's a slut. Oh, my God, she's a slut. I, I totally expect her to have a whale tail. But you'd see that and you'd be like, uh, there's some girls who are just like, oh, you know, I'm not terribly surprised. In a completely non-judgmental way, you're just like, I'm not terribly surprised that I'm seeing that right now. But you'd see some other girl where maybe she'd be kind of like straight laced and nerdy and you'd see that and you'd be like, wow, what a day. But that's one of those phrases. That phrase came about very quickly, which is very clever. I did like that one. I hated the phrase skinny jeans, even though skinny jeans is like a very accurate description of the jeans. It's not like a euphemism or anything. It's not like a clever phrase for it. It's just literally they're skinny jeans. There's just something about that phrase that rubbed me the wrong way. Muffin top too. I was like, I don't like that phrase. But whale tail, I was like, that's clever. And there were, there were entire websites dedicated to it. They were like fetish websites just dedicated. They were like guys, like creeps who went out and they just took pictures of that. And there's a park in Seattle called Whale Tail Park. And I used to laugh at that. Like, I can't even see the phrase whale tail anymore without thinking of like a thong sticking out the back of someone's pants. But that was a good era for that. It was totally new. You know, you're a horny teenager to begin with. And it was just like. Because I prefer that. Like, I, I don't, you know, I'm not even attracted to nudity. You know, like, I'm not one of these people, like, if I am feeling lecherous, I don't enjoy, like, going and looking at naked pictures of women. I like subtlety. 
I like something that's like leaves something to your imagination, but there's just enough. And so whale tales were perfect in that way where it was like, there's just enough here. This isn't, this isn't like nudity. This isn't like showing me too much. This isn't explicit. It's just suggestive. And you learned a lot about women just based on that alone. Like, not just that she was wearing that sort of undergarment, but you learned a lot like based on the the design of it. Because there were some that were very practical. You know, there were some thongs and stuff that were very practical. But it's like if if a girl was wearing a G-string, you'd be like, whoa, that's crazy. Or if it was ornate, that was always crazy. Crazy. Amazing. That was always amazing. Like a girl would be sitting down in class and you'd see like this ornate lingerie sticking out. And you'd be like, wow. Like she wears that. So you learned a lot about people. You learned a lot about women from that. Especially if it was somebody unexpected. It's those little things. It's those little details. You wonder when the, the memo went out about that. You Speaking about the mycelium and the psychic messages that travel among the human mycelium. At some point, a memo went out about that. Girls were like, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to wear that sort of underwear. I'm going to wear those sort of pants. Because you'd have to know that's going on. Like when you're sitting there, you have to like know that something, like a part of your body is sticking out. Usually you can feel stuff like that. But they just kind of accepted that this is going on. But the weird thing about that is like, this is how I know, like I'm, there's a couple of ways that I always know that I'm fundamentally different from certain guys. Like I had a couple of friends that I grew up with. And like when we all got into women, they got really into like super skinny supermodels, which is just completely unrelatable to me. Cause like I see supermodels and I'm like, they're beautiful, but they're not that sexually attractive to me. Like I'm talking about runway models. Like the sort of women that are incredibly skinny with a huge thigh gap. I would see that and I'm just like, you know, that's not even sexually attractive to me. I just never got into that. I don't know why. I wouldn't be able to explain why. It's just simply a matter of preference. But I would see that and I would just be like, yeah, it doesn't really do anything for me. And... uh you know, I, I just, but when I had friends who were into that, cause I had a couple friends and they would just go on about these women or like, if there was a girl in our class who they were into, they would always be going off about the girl who was just insanely skinny. And these weren't the type of guys who had an attitude. Like they didn't have an attitude of like, women need to starve themselves to be attractive. Like, I don't know any guys who felt that way. And honestly, the vast majority of men that I've known, and I'm not even the kind of guy, even though I'm being lecherous and going on about it here, I'm not even the kind of guy who really likes to talk about that with other men. It's personal, even though I'm airing it out here for anybody who stumbles across this. Like when it comes to conversations with men, I don't like to sit there and like compare notes about what we're attracted to. But uh, the vast majority of men I know, like don't prefer really skinny women. That's not something they're into. But I always knew I had a fundamental disconnect with friends of mine when they were like going on about the super skinny girl in our class or some runway model they were into. It just never did anything for me. 
Like those guys probably hated muffin tops. And, uh, you know, you know, it's one of those things you learn about people where I'm like, I'm just not attracted. To, you know, I'm not even attracted to the same thing you are, which is a good thing. It's a good thing that we're not all zeroed in on the same thing. But I also knew there was a disconnect because like when that whole whale tail phenomenon was going on, we're like just about every day you saw that. Like if you were at the mall, if you were at a store and a woman like knelt down to look at something, you might see that it was something that was a daily occurrence sometimes. It was incredible. But I remember other dudes being like, that's gross. Like other straight males would be like, that's that's really disgusting. Oh my God, it's so disgusting when you can see their G-string sticking out the back of their pants. And I'm just sitting there like, let me know if you see that anywhere. Uh, okay, you're disgusted by it. Give me a heads up if you happen to see that. Because that just didn't make any sense to me. Like, that didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Like, there was a girl in a class I had. I didn't even know her. She was just like this. She was, uh, she was Middle Eastern or something. She was something. She, I think she was Middle Eastern. And uh, she was very thick. You know, she had a very, like, she had, like, an hourglass figure, but she was very thick. And there was one day in class where, like, the desks were positioned in this weird way to where, like, she was facing the front of the class but, like, my section of desks was facing those kids. It was a weird arrangement. Like, the kids, who, the kids who had desks in the middle of the class were facing the teacher, but the kids in desks along the side of the room were facing the kids in the middle. Kind of a weird arrangement. But, like, so, like, I was just kind of, like, facing her profile. And there was one day where, like, she had that going on, and I just couldn't stop looking. You know, I wasn't, you know, it's not like I was making it obvious. Like, you, you, there's a subtlety. You know, there's a subtlety. It's the same thing. That it's, it's kind of the same thing as like if you're in a situation and you're paranoid about someone and you learn to kind of look at them out of the corner of your eye. You just kind of keep an eye at them. Like I learned how to do that with women where it's like, no, you don't want to be sitting there like the Tex Avery wolf with your tongue rolling out of your head and your eyeballs bulging. You learn how to kind of subtly look. But I remember like that girl was sitting there and I, I was just I was amazed because like she didn't once again, she didn't seem like the kind of girl who would be wearing that, let alone like showing it off for the world to see. And I just couldn't I couldn't stop looking. And I was sitting with two friends of mine, just like class friends, you know, you, you end up like people you wouldn't hang out with outside of school, but you're just you're in a class with them. So you're friendly. And like one of them pointed out, they were like, look, look, dude. And the other dude like he was like revolted by it. He like his head darted back and he was like, Oh, and I was like, man, I, we definitely don't see things the same way. Cause like, this is incredible. Like what's happening right now is incredible to the point where guess what? I didn't know this at the time. I was 18 years old, maybe 17. I was 17 or 18 years old in my American government class. And I didn't know that I would still remember that 18 years later, but look, I'm talking about it. I remember the exact girl. I remember exactly where I was sitting. I remember that the guys I was talking to who like noticed it were disgusted. I don't know if they were disgusted by the girl. I don't know if they were disgusted by the, the whale tail phenomenon, but I was sitting there and I was just like, Oh, incredible. And I, I couldn't feel there's definitely no consensus. Like speaking of consensus, 
I, there was no consensus between me and these other guys in the class because those guys felt disgusted by it. Whereas I was like, what we're witnessing is incredible. So anyway, I don't know that I have too much more to say about whale tales. Hour and 35 minutes. It's late. I'm going to close this out. Good way to end it. I didn't want to end talking about male rape scenes in movies. I didn't want to end talking about deliverance. I didn't want to end talking about girl pants. I wanted to end talking about witnessing a beautiful whale tale out there in nature. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.